episode seven went live today and we're recording episode 10. Perfect. So eight will be the 27th, nine will be the third, 10 will be the 10th. Yeah, of February. So we're up through Feb. Yes, love it. Yeah, today's a big deal. We're recording episode 10. So that's a milestone. And then we're wrapping up our... Congratulations to you. Uh, We've passed the eight episode barrier, which is where you are at greatest risk of pod drifting, which is a, a term of you get started and realize it's a lot of hassle. And then by around episode eight, you just stop. So our probability of doing this long term has gone way up, which is nice. And then we uh, were on our last deadly sin, organizational deadly sin, which is what? Pride. Pride. That about that, sums it up. I'm not even sure we, we need to have a session. Yeah. <laughs> just throw just down right it. there. And we saved the best for last, really. Mm-hmm. Wrath and Envy got a little bit dicey, but I think Pride it might take the cake. We'll see. Yeah, this one's pretty real. We should have came on with a much more serious tone. <laughs> no, Although, no, we need to really keep it light or this could get, this could get very heavy <laughs> get very dark. and our, our listeners will end up in therapy when we're That's done. That's right. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll try to keep it light then. <laughs> what does pride look like from a seven deadly leadership sins perspective? Pride encapsulates all of the sins to me. I also think from a positive standpoint, it actually unlocks everything else. There's a lot of different pieces you can fix. Envy, wrath, sloth, gluttony, lustful thinking, just like being jealous of the success of others or what others have inside your organizations, etc. But if you can fix pride, if you can actually view other people's success, your peers, your competitors inside your firm, outside your firm, as people that you want to help for the betterment of your industry, for the betterment of society. Flip the whole idea of of being prideful to being one of service on its head, then these other pieces go away. So saving the best for last is a legit statement because it can unlock everything else. When we're talking about like you said, lust, gluttony, greed, whatever. A lot of times those are more focused, point-in-time solutions that, I mean, there was some overlap, which we explored, but it wasn't really like the cornerstone issue. So you're saying the consequences of pride, maybe be they might be a little bit more heavy. And then what you can do to remediate organizational pride can actually have a positive effect across the seven deadly leadership sins. Yeah. That, that is my, both my belief and my experience. So we will talk specifically about how it manifests itself, how you might be observing it or how you might be acting it out. Dun, dun, dun. But at the meta level, if one leader changes their perspective on the way they see themselves and the way they see their interactions with others, it will make all of the other deadly sins easier to address and some just go away. Because if I'm, if I choose to think of supporting you, I am not successful unless Robert is successful, whether it's working on a project together or on this podcast together, then all of a sudden, even the idea of envy as it would apply to an interaction between you and me like you have something I don't have, it just disappears because I'm actually rooting for you. I'm building structure and space in which you can be successful because I define my own success by you. 
as opposed to independently, the more less of a more or less competitive, if you will. Okay, cool. So why don't you outline what does pride look like within an organization? What are some examples? Okay. So when I think of pride, I do want to talk specifically about the way we execute things. We as large teams, we as organizations. And I sum it up like this. Pride is listening without intent or rejecting input. So imagine if as an organization, you've invested $5 million into a, uh, a software suite or a platform, and it simply turns out to be the wrong business decision. Is it better to keep working down that path, making it work, bubble gumming and shoestringing together a solution, bringing on more and more contractors, consultants, et cetera, to make this solution work because you chose the wrong path? Or is it better to stop where you are? So what that sounds like is, well, we bought this thing, we need to make it work versus stopping where you are, acknowledging the mistake and using the rest of the money you have to implement the right solution for your business or your customers. See, even a scenario like that, I would always have to ask, how did you get to a point where you made a, a decision such as this large investment? Inevitably, there is somewhere in that past trajectory, there is an experience of listening, but not actually listening or rejecting critical input because this I, the buyer, thought I knew better. This happens with build versus buy decisions all the time. It, ha it also sound, can sound like we built this thing and it works, but, and then there's all these caveats around it. So there's, a, there's an element of, are you really listening to critical advice are you listening to the to the constraints around you? Are you listening to what your customer um, or your buyer really needs? This really maps closely to like personal pride. So at the personal level, pride is a rejection of others over importance on yourself, over focus. There's a balance being confident. There's a balance being competent, knowing that you can make a positive difference or, or knowing that you can get something done with pride, which is just the, the unhealthy extension over correction in that area. Uh, so I think there's a, this one's a little bit easier, at least for me personally, to understand. And this idea of discarding, not listening, blindly moving forward because you can't see the, the cracks forming around you. That makes sense. But sometimes what you talked about too around you, you go down a wrong path. A lot of times it's just sunk cost fallacy, right? You so we've already sunk a million dollars into this. We just need to keep going because we're in for a pound already. Is, does that play into this? Is, or is that sort of a naive symptom that leads to pride later? Or is that a softer version? Like, what is that? How does the sunk cost fallacy, like, apply in this situation, if at all? I think it applies completely. I, I think they are one and the same. It's a, a step down that same path of pride, of saying, in for a penny, in for a pound, basically. Not everyone is familiar with that expression, but why does one have to be in for a penny and for a pound? Why does one have to take one step and find out that it's the wrong step and not revert? Because you risk what? Uh, brand damage, reputational damage. You risk, you risk breaking trust with someone you committed to or made a handshake with. I, I, I would argue that there is a lot more to be gained 
from the insight and realization at the moment in time that one realizes they made a wrong decision, regardless of the amount of money, to just own it and make it right from that point forward. Because continuing down that path is proven in many different instances to be a worse decision, to be either, let's go backwards to some of the other sins we've talked about, to either drive away your best people, to cause internal work for others, like blame shifting, pushing responsibilities to places they don't belong, or cause additional cost, because now you have to customize something you shouldn't have needed to customize in the first place. I don't know how it ends. You can always spin, right, and rewrite history. But in reality, most of us who've lived through scenarios like that, or studied through them or helped clients through them, can see that point in time where a decision should have been made to like stop, hold, wait, back up, make this right versus let's just keep going a little further. It just, it doesn't work out that way. It doesn't work out well. So you've hit on a few of, we've been talking about what got you here won't get you there, Marshall Goldsmith. There are some individual leadership behaviors that really fall into this, right? So the sort of telling the world how smart we are, that we need to be the smartest person in the room. We need to have all the answers no one else can have a good idea that we didn't come up with first. The need to over add value. You've seen this, right? It's like people have a conversation they have to add that one last thing, mm-hmm. which is really the leadership equivalent of pointing out a font error or a typing error. It's just not, it's not super helpful, but you had to add one thing. Refusing to express regret, not listening, which we talked about before, right? The most passive aggressive form of disrespect for colleagues, which I think was, is really well put. So there are a lot of individual leadership traps that you can fall into as it relates to pride, which I want to explore a little bit. But it also strikes me that as an executive, as a leader, this is actually probably the most under our control to mitigate because our whole job is about volunteering. We really get to decide what we work on. We have a tremendous amount of autonomy and freedom to do that. And so this is under our control because we we can be more selfless and more helpful in and more open about where we go and spend our time and actually avoid a lot of these behaviors altogether. Whereas a lot of the things we talked about before, there's like frozen middle, which we don't like, and how you have to lead other people and provide feedback into the system and things like that. So it takes a little bit more of an organizational scale problem that you have to solve for some of these other deadly sins. But it seems in this one, It's almost exclusively under the control of the leader. And out of the 20 bad habits that Marshall Goldsmith outlines for what got you here won't get you there, there's five or six that falls (laughs) under the pride format. So it's a little sneaky in that regard, it seems. Yeah, I love the way you've described that because it is sneaky and it is also manageable. And there almost every time, I think through the previous six, you've asked me some form of a question around how do I live in this kind of environment? Or what What if these things are happening to me? Pride is one that we, we can't change the way other people act ever, but we can make great strides by simply being a better example, by especially the higher up one gets as a leader, more people are observing you. If you create a culture in which it is okay to make a mistake and own that and reflect on it and revert or change direction, You're actually creating a vulnerable culture in a good way, a culture that's honest and that that is less inclined to pride. 
I, I, it struck me as you were talking about even like the smartest pe- person in the room, how come there's a, how come there's actually an adage about the smartest per- person in the room, but there's not an adage about the most effective person in the room, the person in the room who acts as a force multiplier, the person in the room who is, who's, who is of service, maybe because the smartest person in the room has both positive connotation in our culture and frankly, from this angle, negative. And you spend so much of your career, especially in the early days when all your bad habits are formed, being rewarded for being the smartest person in the room. That gets you a huge chunk into your career. And then you all of a sudden have to switch, but no one really tells you that. And then to piggyback onto that, we have a lot of people volunteering for things that aren't helpful, that are just a waste of time, but they're doing it maybe to mask not being effective in their uh, sort of day-to-day job. So the one example that you know, I've seen in, in the past is like the perennial party planner. Nothing wrong with that. It's something that needs to happen. You have the same person doing that every single time at the distraction of, at the cost of their day job. They're measured on the results they get in the job description and all of these extracurricular things that have been done. You don't get the benefit of those because you haven't built the foundation of success. If you're crushing it at work, and you're the social glue that brings everyone together and creates really good experiences, that can be a, a hugely additive thing. But if all you're doing is over off to the side, planning parties when you have revenue goals to meet or deliverables to get done by the deadline and those aren't happening, then it works against you the opposite way. Yep, that's right. We certainly, as a very an individualistic society, which is has a lot of strengths to it, I'm not knocking that at all, need to have an additional awareness of where a healthy, when does healthy confidence cross the line into pride? Some other ways we can look for this would be in, say, like uh, when I think of planning, I think there are some anti-patterns around planning at whatever level, at the senior stakeholder, the executive level, at the project team level, I look at it as when I hear people looking, plans are important. They are critical sets of data, but they're not definitive in and of themselves. And when I look at someone who kind of avoids planning one way or another, whether it's like the kind of waterfall style of getting married to a plan and staying there and being inflexible, or the complete other side of the spectrum where say if they use agile or lean methodology and they don't believe in a plan, quote, that sort of avoidance is always a red flag to me because I think it's, it is fraught with the, the risks of prideful outcomes of just not listening to warning signs. A second piece of a second planning anti-pattern is one I call obsession, where it's like this kind of myopic look at a plan that ignores everything else around it that can be comments like, this only costs X, so it can't be that hard to do. And you can hear that and extrapolate it at a, a very junior level and at a very an executive level. The third one I look at is I call plan blindness, which is this idea of, sadly, we've both heard these kinds of quotes. Oh, I know we can make these dates if people just work harder. That's one. Or where's your positive attitude? We just need people with positive attitudes here. To make yeah, this we happen. need you to be solution oriented here. <laughs> Don't come at me with problems. Yeah, that's almost a direct quote from when I honestly, when I think about planning and pride, the the fire festival documentary on Netflix is the first thing that pops to mind. I would recommend anyone 
who is looking to understand this a little bit, just watch that documentary and see what you hear about every level of pride from the CEO, Billy McFarland, who presented this fraudulent, this hoax of Based a music in the dictionary by <laughs> prideful leader. Yeah. And the one documentary I watched has an interview from his project manager who is talking about, his name is Mark Weinstein, and he's talking about the things that he saw, like the guy was an expert in his field. And he's like, wait a second, this won't work and this won't work. And he was told over and over again, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. Have a positive attitude, have a can-do attitude. He's like, no, this is delusion that you're creating here. And we can look at it there and laugh about it. But we do that in at macro levels and micro levels in our projects, with our teams, with other executives all the time, just by simply not listening to what people are saying because we're mentally committed to a path. Yeah, and, and maybe that would be a good exercise for our listeners to watch that documentary. It, it, it is some edutainment in that sense, but it reminds me of the second time I watched The Office, I was in a leadership position. The first time I watched it, it was I was naively thought it was funny. And Michael Scott would do some things and it really made me cringe because I was thinking, oh my gosh, that that's me. I've done that. And of course, he does it much more grandly and, and more exaggerated. But that little nugget of truth was in there where you look at that person, you're like, I don't want to, I don't want to be like that. And here it is, he's doing something that you look at and say, oh my gosh, I've done that. And so, you know, that Billy's his name, right? McFarland, Billy, that is the caricature the archetype of the prideful leader. He's he's a criminal too. So some of the stuff you'll have to translate, but at the end of the day, it's like you can really see in action behind the scenes what that looks like carried out to the extreme. And then maybe that would be informative. And we've talked, again, we can't talk about pride in a vacuum because it touches everything else, as you so rightly said. And we talked before about about targeting our superstars, identifying superstars and targeting them as opposed to being grateful for them and spending much more time focused on the underperformer or whatever, trying to make them better. And that kind of that kind of 2x ratio. There's some additional research by Duke University. This was so disturbing to me when I read it that talked about re their research showing that arrogance, which is almost synonymous with pride, is contagious in a team. Oh, so yes. it isn't just the leader that exemplifies this, that lives in a certain way and and like just radiates a set of act, a set of activities and behaviors that people pick up. It's every single person, you can almost sense it like a wave of every single person who exhibits arrogance without that being confronted, that behavior is contagious to everyone they're around. And that that for me made this feel like something that if I saw it in myself needed to be nipped in the bud, if I saw it in other people needed to be nipped in the bud, like it can take down an entire team in without much it effort, has. I would say. Absolutely has. Uh, so Dwight Eisenhower, I'm pretty sure it was him, has this quote, going back to your planning, plans are useless, but planning is indispensable, hmm. right? Or plans are worthless, but planning is essential. I think Mike Tyson said, everyone has a plan. It, in the ring until I hit him in the mouth. Like <laughs> that kind of idea of the act of planning is it's still super important. We are not advocating for some kind of elimination of plans, but we also have to recognize that one, things are will never shake out the way that we think they will. We can't tell the future, but thinking through what might go wrong, 
what kind of what rough shape and size this thing's going to be so we know to adequately assign resources to it all of those things so important but we can't get myopically focused on sticking with the plan because we built that when we were dumber like we're smarter today than we were three months ago why wouldn't we change our mind about that i used to think chocolate milk came from brown cows and then i was presented with some pretty convincing information data that it wasn't and then i switched my course there our people think we're that dumb when we don't change course and it's Mm -hmm. so obvious and and in business this it's like things drag on months and quarters and and then you're in it for a year and something six months late and it's yeah we've been living through this slow train wreck day after day and nothing's happening and so that that can really be terrible for the team mm-hmm. yeah the, for for me the positive on a plan would be what i call plan diligence this we, what you mentioned like just a reality mindset just realizing that you're learning If you're listening, remember the first statement that I made in talking about this was listening without intent. So if you're listening with intent, you would have a reality mindset to know that what you know today is only what you today, and you might learn something critical in the next five minutes if you're really listening. You value conversations and that a plan is just a set of data. It's contributing factors to decision-making. It's not end-all. But I think that this idea of really listening to understand and listening to hear, it doesn't absolve a leader of any in any way from making very hard decisions and being wrong. But the inclusivity versus the closed-mindedness is more likely to get you to a better place. And actually, Duke's research, this the encouraging piece of what I told you about arrogance being contagious is they also found that humility was contagious. And so this was encouraging to me to read that there is hope. And there was a quote there that I wanted to share with you. It said, their research said, the more willing you are to entertain the possibilities that you might be wrong, the better choices you tend to make. So there's something about this, even this idea of open-mindedness that that leads someone down a, a better path based on their research. This also, we talk, we've talked before about decision-making bias and different biases that we just bring into every single interaction that we have, that can really magnify or force you into inadvertently, subconsciously, into an area of pride. So Mm -hmm. like anchoring was, we've been talking a lot about that tendency to rely too heavily on past reference on one trait or piece of information. That's classic pride. That's what we've been talking about. Availability heuristic, estimating what is more likely by what is more available in memory. That could be based on recency. That things are a little bit more vivid for you, but you remember this. You, you can barely remember anything fully, right? And I'm reading this from Andy Buck on Twitter, something he posted. Endowment effect. So the fact that people demand much more to give up an object than they would be willing to pay to acquire it. So valuing the things that you have more. We also, by at least 2x, uh, I think Kahneman, right? won a Nobel Prize on proving that humans fear loss two times as more as uh, potential gain. And I'm pretty sure, and, and I think this was in Never Split the Difference, they could have, they, really they were saying it's 7x, we just said 2x because it w- would have been easier to get through peer review, but it, it might actually be much worse than that. Framing effect, drawing different conclusions from the same information, depending on how that information is presented, especially if you suffer from the wrath sin or like sloth where you're only 
you really care about your high performers and you're taking the path of least resistance, people might present things to you differently because of how they think you'll react. Gambler's fallacy, the tendency to think that future probabilities are altered by past events. This Maybe this worked before we winged it before we didn't have a bad outcome. Group think, that's a terrible, <laughs> that's a terrible mm-hmm. one in and of itself. That seems like a symptom of pride here. And then optimism, tendency, tendency to be over-optimistic, overestimating favorable and pleasing outcomes. I probably suffer from that a little bit. Those sort of decision-making biases in leaders and organizations seem to fit in almost perfectly with this idea of pride. Yeah, they do. Boy, those are good. Really thought-provoking. This whole idea of just being a, being unable to take input effectively to exemplify a different way of leading is detrimental in so many ways. I almost, I almost don't have like other words for it. I love those examples you just shared. We have that we are being incentivized, attacked uh, on all sides. We're being, I'm trying to find the right words here. Constantly, there's a gravitational pull towards pride personally and within an organization. That's, I think history has proven out. That's absolutely true. It's a slippery slope and maybe Breaking Bad, we're talking about TV, might be an example of little tiny decisions that, over the course of four or five years, you're a supervillain at the end. And that's a worry about that as a leader. Like I, I would hate towards the end of my life for someone to come up to me and say, hey, remember that time we worked together? I really hated working with you. You made me feel like crap all the time. And I, I was miserable under your care. And, and people are in that situation every day. And, and I think the leaders above them would very, it would be very rare that it's intentional. I think this stuff just happens one little decision after another over decades. Yeah, man, I think this so is too. scary. This, you're right. This was pretty heavy. It is. And yet always, because we both are a little bit on the optimistic side, there's always a way to revert. You actually can change this behavior tomorrow morning and make a difference. You can start being honest about your mistakes, like first with yourself and then with other people. You can admit them to other people. You can look at your own kind of agility as a person or your own EQ, your emotional quotient, and start to just do some reflection, get three 360 degree feedback from one perspective. Just stop. Almost at some point, I guess, when I've tried bringing in different principles to leadership teams, whether my own or clients, it always comes down to someone has to take the first step. They have to be the first person to say, okay, I'm going to change my behavior starting now. And then that's difficult. You hit the, you hit that kind of trough before you get some productivity, but it does work. It does change dynamics and it does change output as well. I sometimes struggle internally with, because I just, uh, at this point, I've never seen this. I don't, you mentioned about like in every possible way we're incentivized to be self-focused and prideful. It, that 100%. Look at the way people are measured. The, you, me- you mentioned this before, but even like the way we're rewarded at our jobs, by and large, our, you and I, our firm is a little different because we're employee owned and the mission is different, but we're talking about one in a million there, right? By and large, people are rewarded for individualistic behaviors, and that tends toward pride. What if there was an entire revolution that went the, the whole way into human resources, 
rethinking and redesigning people's success criteria to be group focused, to be collective output focused, as opposed to individual. If the group succeeds, I succeed. I only succeed as part of this group, not as my own entity. And, and it's not as simple as I'm laying it out in two or three sentences, because then that could have its own negative downstream effects of, of a few very strong people pulling along behind them, people who are not working as hard. But there has to be a better way. And I don't have it fully engineered, but I know that at least as an individual, I can change my behavior today. And that has positive impacts. I don't know. Just throw that out for some thoughts. It was a little yeah. bit all over the place. A lot of people are rightfully so trying to feed their families and, and generally do the right thing. I don't know that I've really ever come across somebody who is like intentionally trying to sink the organization, sabotage. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I, my mind just went to this. Have you heard of Song Exploder? So no. it's, I think it's a podcast and now they have a Netflix series where they take an artist's song and they like go really deep on what it means. And they talk about everything from like the different musical configurations to what the lyrics meant to like what this pause was supposed to do here. And they had one with Lin-Manuel for Hamilton, which was, have you've seen Hamilton? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So is everybody. So Aaron Burr sings a song called Wait For It. You remember mm. that one? Yes. Yeah. And so they go really deep on it. And, and at the end, Lin-Manuel talks about the, the difference that Aaron Burr and, and Alexander Hamilton were two sides of a coin. The thing is, Aaron Burr came from money. He had a reputation to uphold. And so he could not lose, whereas <laughs> Hamilton had nothing to lose. So he was full speed ahead. And so that's, that whole thing is Aaron Burr is willing to wait for it. That's the whole point. And the decisions he made that ultimately led him to be the villain was about him purposefully holding back and, and not moving forward. And that's a prideful thing, right? He mm -hmm. was ultra prideful, mm -hmm. at least how he's depicted in the play. And it really comes down to this like self-orientation. And I think when you talk about leaders and how they should behave, obviously, as you see these things, giving feedback and, and showing everyone around you that this is not acceptable, but, and, and to your point, we could start that tomorrow. So I think one is helpful to know a lot of the people around you, they're willing to wait, right? There a lot of times they're not going to go and stick their neck out in fear of negative outcomes. So I think part of it is creating an environment where fail, failure is celebrated, empowered, accepted, whatever, whatever works for you. But we also talked about what got you here won't get you there. Five or six of those detracting habits and behaviors that will sink your career as an individual. You can look out for that in yourself. You can look out for that in others. We talked about the three planning sort of fallacies that you mentioned. Those things are obvious because they're so drawn out. They're so long in thread that you can, it's hard to tell when you're in it, but it's obvious to everyone else around you. We talked about decision-making bias. There's what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of those to look out for. Uh, and then one last idea I had was like around an accountability partner. There's times where I'll go into a meeting. It's like, hey, I'm trying to avoid this. So I want you to call me out if this is happening and only good things will happen if you call me out. Like my expectation of you is to say, hey, like you, you messed up here. Mm -hmm. And so that, those are some key areas. But this idea of pride as we unpack it, it just keeps getting broader and broader. Mm -hmm. But there are really specific, straightforward things, maybe not easy, 
but straightforward things that you can do, like you said, tomorrow to get everything moving back in the right track. And because prideful behaviors are detracting and damaging, the absence of them will make a big difference. This one for me is both, at first it can seem very overwhelming. And then when I listen to the awesome way you just summarized even all those actions, it becomes very freeing. It's like, I don't have to do all of those things. I can change one thing tomorrow. I can change a little bit of awareness. I can put someone else's agenda up here, a certainly a customer, but what about a competitor? I can put their, them in front of my own needs tomorrow. I can turn up the volume in my head and actually listen to someone when I didn't listen to them yesterday. Just one decision at a time will change my perspective, change my pridefulness, my natural bent to pridefulness and arrogance to something that is much more designed for humility and service leadership structure and point me on a different path. You can do a revolution or an evolution on this one and still be in a better place. And, And then since we've come this whole way around a clock face, if you will, of deadly sins, the others just become, they just start to dissolve. There will always be hot buttons in each one of those areas. There will always be ways that we can move from meet from like meeting expectations to exceeding or from a basic relationship to a real partnership by shifting each one of these sins. But to me, we save we did save the best for last because pride unlocks them all. Yeah. And I think that's the nice silver lining here, the optimistic view here, which is reality. We talked about the supervillain getting created one bad decision at a time. The superhero has also created one good decision at a time. So you're right. This is not really, I I can't think of any examples off the top of my head where someone made a step function increase in the right direction. It's just little 100 things a day, right? 10 things today, 100 things over the next year, whatever. And over time, that's what really grows people, leaders, organizations into the exceptional examples that we all aspire to. And I've talked before on some other podcasts about givers and takers, the types of people that we want on a team. When I think back to that Duke study about arrogance and humility, I mean, my goodness, would I rather have an entire team of people who are arrogant, who are takers, or would I rather have an entire people, a group of people on a team that I'm like, in the trenches with fighting side by side with every day, striving for good outcomes, excellent outcomes for my customers, I would rather have a group of people who are working toward humility than I would working toward arrogance or just unchecked arrogance. Yep. And in the same way, when our leaders make mistakes, it's so conspicuous. And the ones that admit their mistakes, we would walk over hot coals for. And mm-hmm. so I think it's, it's the same for the people that report to you. It's just as obvious. We're no more clever than our leaders and and probably much less clever. Okay, cool. Pride, this was a good one. What a great series. Episode 10, Reason to Celebrate. Any closing thoughts on this one? I love this whole series. I, this, it's just, it's fun and challenging and reflective every time. And it's so relevant just going over these again and again in different formats. You just see and hear examples everywhere. 
the inter- international on the, the international stage, local politics, workspaces, just anywhere. Sports teams. Uh, sports I mean, teams. You see it everywhere. Can't so I it. like this a lot. It is, it's human nature and all of the things that you mentioned are constructed of primarily humans and their mm-hmm. interactions together. And so it really doesn't matter if you're entertaining people, throwing a ball down a field, trying to govern one of the you know best countries ever in existence, like whatever those things are, they're still made up of people and, and these dis- dysfunctions are human. And so mm-hmm. they're going to, they're going to be everywhere. So I, to, yeah, I like this series. I learn from it every time we talk about it. So I hope other people enjoy it as much. Yeah, great. So yeah, thanks for your time today. We are running up on time. So perfect timing. And we will talk next week. And I'm actually not sure what we're going to talk about next week. So. I know. It'll be a surprise. Yeah, it'll be a surprise. So have a good week. And it was great talk- talking to you. Thanks, you too. 